0: Hello Woodworms, I'm Ray Defterius and this is the Hand Tool Book Review, the podcast for people who love woodwork and love reading about woodworking too. Have you ever wondered if there's an inherent value in quality? Or you might be interested in why someone would choose a career in woodworking. Perhaps you're interested in what lessons a master craftsman would share with you after a lifetime at the bench. Well today's book is from Gary Rogowski and it's called Handmade, Creative Focus in the Age of Distraction. I think it'll answer these questions and many more. I'm also delighted to have Gary join me on the show today for a live interview because I believe that Gary's book was one of the best books I've read about the philosophy of woodworking during the past three years that I've been on my hand tool journey. Frankly, it probably would have helped a lot in my power tool woodworking days as well or life in general if I'd read it earlier. And yet, in many ways, it's a book that's time had come when I read it. I've wondered a few times whether I would have been able to process or have been ready for the book a decade ago. I'm not sure that the answer is yes. And this is supported by the fact that while I recommend the book, heck I even offered to buy the book for a few people, not everyone has considered it as exceptional as I did. That said, no one complained that it was boring. So even if it does not speak to you at a soulful level, or maybe the questions are ones that you're not ready to deal with quite yet, it's still a very good read. And i suggest that putting it back on the shelf and visiting it in a few years time might just be the route for some people. So let's talk a bit about Gary before we dive into the questions. So Gary has been building fine furniture in Portland since 1974. He's the director of the Northwest Woodworking Studio, which has been open since 1997. As a teacher, Gary focuses on traditional hand-tool techniques but it's safe to say that he places a lot of emphasis on design strategies and this way of working allows students to find their own voice while they're on his programs. He attended Reed College and earned a degree in literature and this love of literature comes through in the book. Handmade is full of references to great books. In fact, I think that for the reading list alone, the book is a great buy. Gary's authored three books. He's authored a book called Router Joinery, The Complete Illustrated Guide to Joinery and Handmade is his third book and he's done a number of DVDs on techniques as well. His work has been on show at the Contemporary Crafts Gallery, Artquake in Portland, the Oregon Biennial at the Portland Art Museum, and he was also a recipient of an Oregon Arts Commission Crafts Fellowship. If you're curious about him, you can find more detail at his website, northwestwoodworking.com. So Gary, it's an impressive list of accomplishments, and I'm quite envious of the amount of teaching, craft work, writing, and just sheer purposeful living that you seem to get through. So my first question is really just, how do you manage to get to all of this? And with the teaching that you're doing and all the different programs, are you still able to work in the shop a lot?
1: I'm a furniture maker. I don't <laughs> actually these days. I teach so much. I say, God, I hear that this woodworking is a really great hobby. I got to take it up. <laughs> it be fun to try. <laughs> So I, I, I have to struggle to get to the bench um, and get actual work done. So that's how it is. Do, do, you,
0: do you find that there's a, a real big mix now of you doing um, teaching as opposed to actual work?
1: Oh, no, it's mostly teaching. Okay, It's mostly teaching, yeah. I, I get some commissions. I just finished up a, a small, small piece. Um, but, yeah, just a few a year now. No, it's not uh, how i spend the bulk of my time so i have okay. i have mastery students in every day and i have evening classes and we're we'll running other evening classes and just keeping the shop running is a full-time job
0: doesn't strike me as the easiest way to make a living so i'm sure that there's quite a lot of demands
1: yeah, uh, small comfort, but every once in a while, every couple of years, Peter Korn and I chat, and uh, and you know he's done a remarkable thing with his his school up in Maine. But he said, you know, no one really knows how hard you have to work except me. <laughs> and I said, thank you, I appreciate that. I'm reading I'm reading a fascinating book now. Do you know this book, Digital Minimalism? I'm trying to think of the author's name. It's Cal Newport uh, about um, choosing which technologies you choose and optimizing your interface with those technologies and getting rid of the ones that that just suck up your time and energy like twitter and i'm on okay. twitter and i send out tweets and and then i find myself i was doing it yesterday i went i just entered a, a, a rattle here and i gotta get out and that sort of stuff is uh can happen in a day so i'm very disciplined about my writing i get up and early in the morning start my writing but uh, and then the day begins and it's far less disciplined so uh, there's always work to be done on that on that level because there's so many things tugging at us
0: i kind of like having one physical pursuit and you know i know you've got the hiking i've got mountain biking that i do quite a lot of so i'm pretty much always doing something like mountain biking or running you know as a physical pursuit and then i like to have something that i think of as a bit more cerebral and funnily enough i find the woodworking also fits into that category a lot more than i would have
1: expected yeah i think that was one of the things when i graduated college and i went to a college that turns out a lot of phd candidates and uh when i started maybe a year year and a half after i graduated i was stunned by how cerebral woodworking was there was so much to learn there was you know so many old skills I need to dredge up, like mathematics. And, and I was a literature maker, so that stuff was way, way in my past. So it's uh, it's stunning how uh, challenging intellectually woodworking can be.
0: You know, we always have that moment where the, the tenon snaps or something doesn't fit or you've got something wrong and then you go, all right, let me step back. How am I going to fix this? And, and I think that when I when I realized that, woodworking is not about doing things perfectly it's about being comfortable with your ability to fix them it certainly got a lot easier for me in the shop
1: yeah that's a huge one that's took me years to get to that point yes i think there are many similarities uh not just with um, with it but i just had a uh, another physician uh, write me this morning and just read my book And the parallels between medicine and actually surgery, the uh, head of surgery at a local teaching university was in class and said, I had no idea how much woodworking was like surgery. (laughs) I said, me neither. (laughs) But that problem solving brain you have to have because you get yourself into spots that you don't expect to be in. And then down the road, how to avoid those spots, how how to avoid getting in those situations. That's a big one. So.
0: I don't know whether that thought has made me uh, more well inclined towards surgeons or deeply, deeply scared about going into hospital.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think I think an appreciation of their limitations is worthwhile. Some of them are geniuses, and some are surgeons, and they like to cut. You know, some of them are are, are really lifesavers. So it all depends. It all depends.
0: And Gary, we're speaking about writing, and I've been through your book a couple of times. I think I mentioned that. Originally I bought the Kindle edition of it because I wanted to read it and it's a easy format to read. And then I liked it so much I ordered a physical copy because I thought it'd be the kind of thing that I'd want to reread and and just stop and pause and contemplate a bit. But I also got the audible version and you know listen to listen to that in the car in preparation for the show just you know over the last couple of weeks just went through that slowly again and there's quite a lot where you'll read a bit out on splinters on your podcast. There's quite a lot that I've heard a few times, but with each retelling of the story or re-listening for me, it feels like there's a lot of inter inter interrelations between the different stories. And and I'm curious, did you consciously sort of craft it together like that? Because it it really feels like it's a a whole, it's been well put together and that there's points you're making very subtly, I guess, in the different stories that come together. How did you go about that? Did it sort of emerge from jotting down notes for an autobiography or did you consciously work Mm -hmm. towards a theme?
1: No, I, you know, a lot of this book, people said, well, how long did it take you to write it? And I said, "Eh, 40 years, (laughs) Um, and a year and a half. So, you know, a lot of those thoughts were ones that were emerging, oh, 20, 25 years ago, when I was started to go on the road teaching. And I mean, that letter from from my friend Molly, uh, that was was so so long ago. Uh, So a lot of this stuff just sort of started to accumulate. And and then I, I recognized that I was telling stories to my students quite a bit, and I was retelling them, and I was hearing them again, and hearing them again, and I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll start to jot some of these down, and so I I did some blogging way back when, and the idea of bringing uh, the hiking stories and in Wheaton into the, into the plan uh, just kind of evolved. I knew I wanted to talk about this important hike, and I just had taken an important walk to this spot that I had visited with Wheaton in the early '70s, and uh, and it's it's all true There's I still have the map, and I took the, I took that hike uh, with my beagle who had just recently passed, and he was about best guess is 14 or 15 years old, and we went everywhere together. And that uh, his passing led me to to really get serious about writing stuff down, and so it was just kind of a I don't know, an accumulation of events. And I said, yeah, this hike was important. I've always remembered it. I did it again with the Beagle uh, when I was in my 60s, mid-60s. And uh, it was arduous. <laughs> it took forever. And I almost didn't make it. And then pushing through that, I realized, oh, look at this. You know, this is stuff that really translates well to, to the stories I tell my students about sticking with it and pushing through those hard times and, and staying on it and that it takes discipline.
0: I think it certainly does. You know, one of the things when I go mountain biking or a few decades ago when I was doing quite a lot of jogging, it strikes me so often that you'll be doing a race or a ride and you'll be going through switchbacks and it hurts like hell, you know, and you <laughs> you get to the next corner and there's another and you're not at the summit and you get to the next corner and there's another and you're not at the summit. And so often i see people, you know, stopping and walking and then you'll go around one one more corner or two more corners and you'll be at the top. And, you know, in some of the rides I've done, it takes maybe three quarters of an hour to ride to the top of the, the hill. And yet there'll be someone who's given up literally four or five minutes from the summit where they've got off oh, and, yeah. they've, and they've right. walked. And, and, and I always just always just feel that, you know, it's, it must be incredibly sad to, to be at that place and then come around the corner and have a realization that, gee, it really wasn't that far. And to maybe stretch the analogy a little bit to woodworking the the pity of not pushing through not doing the practice not getting to that point is that you you don't go around that corner and then see where the finish line is you you kind of give up and it's almost like you're walking back down the hill and yet I suspect that if people would hold on and uh, and practice a little bit more on a few more things and not want that instant gratification that they would just find that it becomes easier to go further up a hill easier to go up a, a steeper hill and like, you know, the view from up there is incredible.
1: Well, I you know, the, the problem for me was always being so goal-oriented. Got to get up the hill, got to get to the top. If I don't get up to the top, it's a wasted day. That's how I used to think about things. And that's just so wrong. It just places all the, the burden on this end goal. And sometimes it's not that great at the top. It's just the top. But the top is no different than the middle of the hill, really. It's just that it gives us a different sense of accomplishment but you know for some people getting out on the hill is an accomplishment so it's it's hard to keep that in mind you know when you're a goal-oriented athletic type that let's charge up the hill but there's that story with me and we we were on a on a hike and we got overtaken by these chattering mountaineers this mountaineering club and they just blew by us and we're sitting there because we were both smokers at the time sitting going Oh my God! <laughs> and so you know, someone's always faster, and someone's always going up, going up quicker. And so,
0: no, I think there's there's seven billion people on the planet. Um, yes yeah. there's, there's always someone better than you at something. Oh
1: you know, yeah. I,
0: I did a marathon. Uh, not a marathon. It was a ten k ten k race once, and I hadn't been running for a couple of years. And uh, everyone at work said, "Okay, we'll just enter this relay event." And I think I got a seven seven k leg or an eight k leg. It was just under. 10 kilometers so you know call it five miles something like that and I was the first runner so I started and there was this absolutely huge woman who was running next to me she must have been double my weight and I and I just said to myself I'm not going to let her beat me to the the finish line or to the you know to where we hand over the baton because everyone will know that she's beaten me I can't hide and pretend that the runner before me you know came in came in thing I, I was the first runner and we got to the last mile and I, I just had to let her go. I couldn't run anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, It's humbling. <laughs> there, there, was, there was a good life lesson in there that, that sometimes you get rewarded for what you've done, you know, not what you, what you remember having done or what you think you can do. So, yeah, there was a, there was a bit of humble pie that day and uh, a lot of laughter from my colleagues.
1: Yeah, we you know, particularly when I was younger, it was always getting up the hill, get up the hill, get up there fast. And and now I realize is just getting out there and and looking around and taking things in is just I think more valuable. And I, I missed a lot of stuff the way. But that's how we are when we're young.
0: Yeah, I think also you know just with the woodworking, something that that strikes me, and I guess it's kind of reflecting between power tools and hand tools quite a bit, but. Whenever I hear someone saying, Oh well, this will be faster if you use X machine or do, you know, XYZ I sit down, I think when you go hiking or, you know, when you when you do anything that's a sort of circular route like I do when I go on a mountain bike, the, the purpose isn't to get to the finish all that always. The purpose is to enjoy the ride. And yeah. You know, I think keeping that, that other perspective that says, like you're saying, it's not about getting to the top of the hill sometimes, sometimes it's about that entire round trip. And if you're enjoying that whole trip, I don't know people who say, gee, we must hike faster, hike faster, let's get it finished. You know, the people are out there to hike at their pace and enjoy it. And I find that a good thought occasionally in the in the workshop when I find that I want to rush something is to say, well, are you here to rush this entire process that so the only piece of enjoyment you ever get out of it is when you complete something or are you here to enjoy the process of building and being in the shop? And, uh, um, I think if I can spend more time enjoying the process in the shop, it's certainly more rewarding than just finishing projects.
1: Yeah. It's, it's always a balancing act, the hiking and, and mountaineering aspect, or analogy is just so apt about you know false summits and pushing yourself through hardship and it's just so apt but at the bench there are always different considerations so take joinery all right you're building a piece there's a good way of building it there's a better way of building it and there's maybe the the way to build it which one are you going to take on and that will determine quite about the time you spend, uh, your frustration level perhaps, so, you know, are you gonna be learning stuff along the way, or is this stuff you already know? All these all these questions uh, arise with just the simple, I'm gonna build a table, I'm gonna build a little table today. So many things, so many questions need to be answered. Uh, so it's not quite as simple always as, as walking up the hill, but uh, there are there are analogies that are they're very apt.
0: One of of the things that um, is obviously, you know, quite recurrent in the book is the the whole concept of quality and and whether quality has got inherent value. And and I guess that's also a a personal um, reflection on on what you're doing. My my quality and your quality would be very different and my quality now will be different in in 10 years' time. Sure. you mentioned Peter Korn earlier, and you know I wasn't familiar with him until uh, you know reading your book, and then I I went and picked up his book, and I you know also found that to be an, an excellent read. But he had an interesting concept to say that that search for meaning that he was going through was. Personal and unique to him, but was also a product of the times. And you know, then I thought about it, and you know, whether it's someone like Joshua Klein and doing mortise and tenon and doing some phenomenal stuff there, showing how there's these different possibilities of of doing woodworking in in different ways, and his involvement with carpenters without borders, yourself and 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 Corn, but. You know, then, then I see a reference to, to Ruskin and Morris, and I, I haven't uh, started reading uh, any of, of Ruskin yet, but I downloaded one of his books. And it just strikes me that that these are universal themes that are are really each generation seems to struggle with, and that maybe there are specific points that are, are relevant to them against the particular history. But I think you mentioned technology and trying to get away from technology. I think that kind of grappling with quality and the value of handwork is more important now than ever, I would suggest.
1: Well, I agree with you, but only up to a point. I, everyone has a line in the shop beyond which they will not cross. And for some, it is to plug in a machine. I have, I have one great student who has been taking classes now for a year with me, and I'm showing the rest of the class this, this router jig, and he's saying, nope, doing it by hand. <laughs> and I say, okay, that's a, that's a fair choice. But there's always a, a question about what's your line? What what line won't you cross over? I mean, one could argue that using a modern hand plane is <laughs> is is skating past some of the hard effort that our ancestors, uh, our woodworking ancestors, took on. They said, okay, well I've, I've got a hand plane. This work, all right. I'm going to go make a hand plane. I'm going to go make a hand plane, and I'm not going to go out and buy a Lee Nielsen tool or a whole tie or whatever you may have it at hand. And I'm going to go and make this tool. And that's that's their line. So, I, you know, I think that line is shifts quite a bit. And everyone has to decide for themselves. Um, I don't want to have a computer working my machines in the shop. I don't want a CNC. I don't want a laser cutter. I don't want any of that stuff. And yet part of my goal is to... Part of my artistic mission, I guess, is to create furniture, and to do that, I need a certain level of efficiency. So I, I like to have a lot of tools in my kit, and uh, some are machines, and some are powered or battery powered, and some are hand tools, and I choose the ones that that fit. So I'm not I'm not proselytizing for any one particular method. I'm I'm suggesting that there are many out there, and choose the ones that that suit you best. Now the zeitgeist thing. Another whole story. <laughs> That's another whole world. So I'm rereading. I haven't read this book. Have you ever read uh, James Joyce at all? Uh, uh,
0: no, I, I'm not not uh, familiar with James Joyce. No.
1: James Joyce is, uh, was well, maybe he wasn't that famous. Uh, but no, so- uh, sorry,
0: I've, I've certainly heard of him. I just I just can't okay. claim to have read any of his books. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, his books are let's be charitable, impenetrable. But uh, so certainly Finnegan's Wake and Ulysses are, are, are pretty tough reads. But I just reread Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, which I haven't read since high school, probably. And he's talking about the same issues, only for, for Joyce and his character. It's about you know trying to find himself and trying to understand what is beauty and what is art. But it's also wrapped up with him being Irish and his sense of country and the struggle with England and all this stuff. So it's, it's political at the same time. But that need define oneself uh, in terms of making a meaningful life is, I think that's that's such a universal theme uh, for us all.
0: There's a very interesting book I'm reading at the moment uh, by Mark Boyle. He's an Irishman who, who wrote, I think his first book was called The Moneyless Man. He decided to live without money for three years and see how that went. And then subsequent to that, he wrote a book called The Way Back Home, which is about him if effectively deciding to shut down on technology and move to rural Ireland. Um, so he gave up cell phones and, uh, and computers and the like, and basically wrote what was essentially, I guess, a series of blogs by hand, sent them off, you know, through the post office. And eventually that was put together and it was, was published. I read that and, you know, it, it's hard for me to imagine uh, moving to that extreme on moving away from technology, but it's something I grapple with. You know, I've got young children and I say, well, if I give them an hour on Saturday and an hour on Sunday to play with their computer, is that enough or is that too much? Like you said in the shop and I'm, and I'm certainly, I'm no, I'm no hand tool purist. It's largely, largely a decision around safety. And what I must say is since I've come to use a hand plane, which I'd never picked up before, I mean, there's certainly some things that I think uh, hand tools are certainly superior on, but I'm I'm not fundamentally against them, you know, on principle. When I said earlier that we're grappling with what technology to use, it it certainly wasn't in the context of creation. I, I've I've seen a beautiful piece of work recently where someone did a CNC walnut uh, values board, and you know this basically cut out all the letters for them, and they filled that, and they've made it glowing from behind, and 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 it's really an incredible piece. And I would I would argue that someone using what is cutting edge electronics and I think it probably costs in the region of $3,000, $4,000 for the equipment. So really, you know, expensive, high-end stuff. And yet, at the end of the day, it's just being used to create. You know, you mentioned the modern plane. I've got a Lee Nielsen. Um, it's certainly nothing like the scrub plane that I built myself out of Beach, and it's got a single old yeah. tapered iron in it. That, that's, that's very different uh, technology. But I, I think that sometimes the technology in the shop is blown out of proportion. It reminds me of hang gliders and paragliders you know fighting with each other about which technology they're flying and i used to fly a hang glider and we would never associate with those paragliding guys and you know i look back now and i think she was all of us just wanted to get off the ground and go fly but we right. we were right. so 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 similar and yet you know we'd fight we'd look for this look for this difference so right. I, I certainly think any any range of tools that someone wants to use to create something i think it's fantastic if they find meaning in that if they enjoy working with that i think I think that's wonderful. I think that process of creation is what's important for me, and I think the process of creating something that that you've done in a in a world that really is quite I don't know throwaway if I can call it that. You know, I, I think that we'll, we, most children today are being taught well. You'll get up, you'll grow up, you'll get a good job, and then. In spite of all the time you might have or the ability you might have on your, your hands, you're going to go to a shop and buy a piece of furniture and then you'll do better 10 years later and you'll buy a bigger piece of furniture and a better piece of furniture. And, and right. that, that, that's a good route rather than saying, well, I'm going to invest in myself and make some skills. And I'm going to make a table that might not be perfectly 90 degrees on all of the corners and it might have some tear out on the bottom or probably even the top. But I've made that and I can, I can be proud of that, that act of creation.
1: Yes, I, I'm, uh, I'm working on a book on uh, on creativity now. And um, so I have this story, it's a true story. You're talking about hang gliders and uh, out where I am, there's a lot of uh, windsurfing and uh, what's the other thing they do, but anyway, Talk there's surfing. a, yeah. Uh, yeah, kiteboarding. And yeah. Uh, so, you know, they kind of snipe at each other a little bit, you know, saying, you're not like me. And uh, or what I do is better, or, you know that sort of stuff. As you say, the really the, the important thing is that you're creating stuff and you're using that side of your of your brain. But a friend of mine, uh, lived in this you know lives in this part of Portland that's you know fairly hip and there's lots of stuff going on in the street. Anyway, one day he was at the bank and he was standing in line with his wife and she pointed out this guy who was standing in line who was wearing a tail. He and his he and his uh, Girl companion or woman companion, woman friend, and they were both wearing tails, like a raccoon tail or a coyote tail, some some kind of tail, and they were right in front of him in line. And so my friend Mark said, uh, "All right, I'll bite. Why are you wearing a tail?" And the guy went and launched into this long diatribe, really about you know animal abuse and and the fur trade. And you know Mark was sympathetic, and, but he felt he was sort of being lectured. Well, anyway, a few minutes later. Somebody else walks into the bank and he's wearing a tail. And tail guy number one gets outraged because tail guy number two hasn't put his tail on properly. So he goes over there and lectures this guy about how to put your tail on. And uh, it just points out how wrapped up we can get in our sense of, air quotes, rightness. This is the right way. You know, if you use if you pick up a router, you're not doing it the right way. If you use this kind of tool, you're not doing it. You know.
0: I think it's very easy to... Yeah, to find those differences rather than to look for the similarities. I think it's a sadness, maybe of hu- humanity, that we try and identify with a smaller group rather than find commonality with the larger. Yeah, yeah, I'm afraid so. Gary, you mentioned creativity and I and you had a fascinating podcast, which I think was just a broadcast of an open house where you had some musicians in who were talking about how they how they viewed the world, and that that really I I found. Very, very interesting in terms of their concept of the live performance is really, really all there is. But uh, do, do you find that you, you get a lot from talking to dis- different disciplines and uh, um, creative people in different different crafts, as it were?
1: Yeah, it's been really fun. I've been doing this for maybe five years now, maybe longer. I don't do them that often, so it seems like there's a, it's just been running for a few months. But uh, they're called Design Open Houses, and I invite people from different disciplines to talk about big ticket items, and I had invited a uh, choral master to talk about, I think that's the one you're referring to, although it could be the pianist. I mean, I've had a number of different people, and it's so different, mm-hmm. their, um, their way of looking at, at things, but, you know, many similarities uh, make it uh, you know fascinating for us to, to chat about. The one with uh, Bill Crane was about curiosity that was our topic for the for the evening and it was bill crane a a pianist and uh my friend david minnick who's a photographer and myself and so we were talking about curiosity that night from many different perspectives so yeah it's been really fun to see that and and musicians are you know very different because it's all it's all time-based art right there it is and then it disappears of course there are recordings and all that stuff but it's uh and it's so different. Um, there's a book called This Is Your Brain on Music. I haven't quite finished it. It's a little difficult for me. But it talks about how the how music affects us and what part of our brain affects us or gets affected by music. It's so it's so deep inside of us, the, our response to music, that uh, it's pretty fascinating to, to chat with musicians. They have a different way of, of seeing the world. We get, you know, it's just like that. It's just what we were talking about. It's just, you know, feeling separate and different instead of together but it's it's fascinating to see how a musician thinks about inspiration or creativity so it's fun
0: forgiveness is a big theme of the of the book you know and i i think i said to you that i've now told myself to ragowski it occasionally which is just yeah
1: that cracks me up i
0: i really i i must tell you that that the book probably came at a at a very good time for me. But my, my biggest takeaway around that was this concept of being patient because I'm working on myself as much as I'm working on the, on the work. And um, it really became a lot easier to invest in myself, I guess, in a way because I could say, well, I'm going to build this thing for my wife And there's an easy way to do it. And I can stick it together with a couple of brackets and I can stick it together with some screws, or I can use it as an opportunity to do 25 mortise and tenons and really work on learning how to do mortise and tenons. And that the project then takes on this life of not just being about making the artifact, but actually even more so becomes on working on myself together to get the skills. But I think that that whole concept of forgiveness and patience and forgiving yourself for Things in your past, we seem to carry so much of our past with us. And you know, you you make one slip at at the bench, and you remember your father screaming at you because you were useless at cricket when you were young. Y- you speak about this work being an act of forgiveness for you, and that that really comes across in the book to me.
1: Yeah, that brings up all sorts. It's a um, let me let me try and respond to all these things you brought up. For people who are just starting out, when I was just starting out, I would take on jobs. I would try and get jobs that always challenged me. And so I didn't know what I was doing and I worked alone and I was trying to teach myself. I just had a piece. Uh, I built this piece. I built this desk for this client back in 86. She wrote me yesterday and it just got placed in a gallery because she's done her, her working life is done and she didn't need this large desk. She was an attorney and I realized, boy, that was a long time ago. And I and I wrote her a note. I don't think I ever told her, but I wrote her this note saying, one of the things I learned from, from building this piece was to never show your prospective client a drawing of something that you didn't know how to build. <laughs> I, I didn't know how to build this piece. And it had, it was a you know giant desk with curved sides to it. So she, you know, she wanted this, this curve. I had shown her this curve. And so I had to figure out how to do bent laminations and then edge laminate the bent laminations to create these curved panels. And it was nuts. It was a nuts job, but I learned so much and I think taking on those jobs is a challenge intellectually and, and psychically because the failure rate is is so, so high and it takes so long. But that was part of the appeal for me, just like doing 25 mortises, maybe for you and the table to uh, take these things on and learn as you're building stuff. So I think that's really fun. I mean, I think that's that's really fun. I, I forget that because uh, I'm at a point now where I go, yeah, I'm mortise and tenon, right, which method do I want to use today? And away I go.
0: When when you talk to that, there's also there's so much that's below the surface. You know, when you when you talk about showing a design, one of the things that that fascinates me. And I I, I didn't ever think I would be a, a fan of Chinese or Oriental furniture, but recently I got uh, Gustav Ecker's book because a friend of mine had a. And I was looking I was looking at this three way um, mitre joint on the yeah. edge, and I, that that that's a terrible joint. You know, if you if you glue that up. It's on end grain to end grain to end grain. And that thing's just got to fall apart. And, and then he told me, this piece of work is a 16th century Ming desk. I mean, he paid an absolute right. fortune for it, you know. Right. Um, right. And I said to him, look, I've, I've always liked it. But I, I I just, you know, I just can't understand how this thing is hung together. And then I went and did some research. And, and obviously, there's a little bit more to it than sticking three miters together. The the complexity oh, yes. of that joint is,
1: uh, oh, is, is yes.
0: it's quite incredible. But it puzzling through that and... And trying to build that, and, uh, and, I, and I haven't done that joint yet. It's you know it's something that I've got there on the horizon. But I, but I think there's so much value in committing to doing something like that, then trying it. And and even if you fail horribly, one of the things I love about woodworking, and, and look, to be fair, I'm not working with ebony and Honduran mahogany and all those kind of things. But if I get something wrong, w- what has the real cost been? The, r- the real cost has been a piece of wood, and th- that's assuming I can't salvage it at all. So, so there's just this wonder of... Being able to work on it and say, well, if I don't get it right, I can do it again, and I can learn something. I can learn, okay, I was too aggressive on a cut, or I cut too close to the line, or I planed too much, or I didn't leave enough for this, or you know, there's that discovery process. And like you say, I'm sure that you know you well beyond those sort, you know, those sorts of places. But for me, it's it's absolutely fascinating the the depth and the complexity that's behind the furniture. And sometimes the simplest looking things have had so much. Design work and thinking and you know hidden hidden joinery that have gone into it. It's just mind boggling sometimes.
1: So you know there's always a learning curve. There's always a learning curve, and we have to get back to forgiveness too. But uh, the learning curve is 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 so interesting because you, you know you start off and you and you learn so much about wood or milling up wood or grain direction and then mortise and tenon and and what a mortise and tenon is actually supposed to be doing for you. And then you, if you get into the, the Chinese stuff and some of the Japanese joinery, uh, you understand how they put some structure in there so that these pieces that should have fallen apart don't because of a simple wedge in the right spot. Uh, I think the wedge, and its importance in the, in the woodshop is, is huge. And this leads me to stuff that these uh, 18th century furniture makers were doing. The uh, clockmakers, the horologists were making these automatons and, and the theater wrench the pieces that opened up and, you know, had secret compartments and drawers that revealed other drawers. And all of this stuff was done with no servo motors. It was just done with levers, cables, pulleys, weights. Uh, I've got a story about, uh, I was doing this piece for this church. And so, so I'm, I'm fascinated by this, this stuff that's been around for centuries, but I was doing this piece for a church and they wanted a, uh, lectern that uh, was adjustable any motor on it so I didn't want any sound on it. and it had to go down to uh, the level f- so it was comfortable for a woman in a wheelchair and comfortable for a man who stood six foot three and so I was thinking about it and I came up with a two column system uh, rectangular columns that moved up and down and I was thinking of, of a way that I would I would use a counterweight and I would pour some concrete into a tube and so i went to the concrete store and i said okay so how much you know if i fill this tube how much is a bag of concrete gonna weigh you know it weighs what 40 pounds 50 pounds now what does it weigh when it's set no one could help me so i bought two bags of concrete i go out to the yard and i'm telling this guy all right so i am getting you know find this concrete for ballast and what do you think this is going to weigh when it's all said to me like I'm an idiot? And goes, why don't you just buy ballast sand? And I said, because I didn't know that ballast sand existed. That's why. <laughs> and I went across the street and got him a, a, bought him lunch. Yeah, there's this stuff that we keep rediscovering. And uh, that's, it's just so fascinating and it's, it's so interesting when you, when you, particularly for, for newbies, they come around and they go, well, did you just see this article by so-and-so huh, where, where he showed us how to do this? I said, yeah, but that's been around for a couple hundred years. It's just, we just keep relearning these things. It's so fascinating.
0: Okay, woodworms. So we'll break the interview there. Join me next week when Gary continues the rest of his interview, talks about forgiveness, and where I give a detailed review of the book. If you have any comments or suggestions, drop me a mail at handtoolbookreview at gmail.com. Until then, stay safe in the shop, go make something beautiful.